I'm looking for all the drama and trauma to show up in our business and it frankly, it just hasn't. If your business model is good, if the deal makes sense, there is a ton of money that's looking for you if you're able to manage it well, do what you say you're gonna do and put together a decent business plan. There are no bad notes. There's just bad prices. Mm. So everything's price driven. There's something called emotional equity. You know, people don't wake up in the morning, you know, hey honey, I just ran Zillow on our home and our equity just went from $20,000 to zero. We should get out of this house because we don't have equity in it anymore. What are you talking about? The real estate world is changing. Opportunity is everywhere. It has never been so easy to connect, share, and bring people together. We're learning from others and finding the very best in ourselves. Challenging our beliefs, overcoming our fears, transforming ourselves so we can transform our business. This is Investor Creator. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Investor Creator. And today we're going to be talking with my good friend, Jim Maficio. So Jim is a long-term real estate investor. He actually started buying real estate and developing real estate about 30 years ago in Southern California. And in 2009, he switched and became a note investor. So 2009, he began investing in mortgage loans and really has created an amazing business. And as you're going to hear from Jim, how he buys and rehabs notes, basically. He's buying non-performing seconds. And guys, he's got a lot of notes. He said between 1,700 and 2,000 is what he has working at any given time. So you're going to want to check this out. It was a really interesting interview for me to do and one of my favorites that I've done so far. So without further delay, here's Jim. Jim, welcome to Investor Creator. Good to be here with you. So I've been looking forward to this. Guys, we're going to be talking about a lot of fun things. We're going to talk about real estate. And what I'm really interested in talking to Jim about is notes because he is buying and creating notes all across the country. But first, I want to get your thoughts on the market. So with this COVID thing going on, we're now in August, the beginning of August. I mean, what's your thought on what you're seeing from the lender perspective? What do you think about the real estate market? Yeah, wow, well, that's a loaded question, you know, because as you know, and probably your listeners know, there is no the real estate market, but I'll try to get specific. But, you know, our particular asset class, we have by design chosen to, uh, you know, being, being in the mortgage space, we're the lender, not the owner of a property. So we are pretty much divested across the country. So our typical collateral that secures our paper is, you know, in the Midwest somewhere where maybe the property is worth $150,000 and what's owed on the note is 100. And we bought that at 60. So, and by the way, the mortgage payments are less by a considerable amount in many cases than what the property would rent for. So, I mean, it really doesn't matter whether, quote, the market goes up and down. What matters is whether that homeowner continues to pay their mortgage. And that's the very last thing a person's going to stop paying. And it happens. But uh, even if they did, worst case scenario, I mean, there's room for us to put substantial money in their pocket to move on and go rent somewhere. And then we have an asset that we can rent out for actually more 
in many cases, more cash flow than we were getting on the note. So my partner and I designed this business to be as recession-proof as possible. And we've just gotten one of the you know tests of all tests here. And I have to tell you, I'm looking for all the drama and trauma to show up in our business. And it frankly, it just hasn't. We've had a handful of, of our borrowers request forbearance agreements. And of course, we're not required to give those mm-hmm. at the same level because we're not dealing with government-sponsored entities here, the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. You know, These are private mortgages now that have been modified typically. And we're just not seeing it. If anything, we've seen a, a few of the less gutsy players in our space, the smaller people kind of bail out of the space looking for the next shiny object, which has created more buying opportunity for us. So I hate to sound like the you know, we were talking a little bit offline before this, but I hate to sound like, you know, the undertaker who's having a good year because a lot of people are dying, you know, but right, yeah. yeah. honestly, I mean, we're helping a lot of folks and it's been pretty wrinkle-free for us. So I do think we'll see some price. I think we were due for this before COVID. I think there's some markets that have heated up. Typically the coastal markets, it's what, what always happens, it seems like. And with some of the political I won't get political, but with some of the other dynamics, let's just say, in place on the coasts and, and some of the decisions that are being made, you know, for business people, I just don't get wanting to stay in play any longer. So I think you're going to see some pulling back of property values. You're going to see some people pulling out in the uh, on the coasts. But, you know, like I said, we're spread across the country and we have a pretty elegant model that protects us from a lot of the typical drama that, that we see out there. So. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into how recession-proof owner financing is because that's really my play as well. I remember in 2014 when the market really began to heat up some that I didn't like that market. And in 2014, I actually had a worse year than I did in 2012 because our ability to buy in 2012 was just, I mean, everybody was just giving away houses, giving away houses. We had really great terms and pricing that we could then go and sell with owner financing. But we'll get into that. How did you get involved in real estate? Because I know you've done a lot of development, especially in Southern California, those kinds of things. So how did you get involved in real estate first? And then what made you transition into the new business? I'll give you the super 30,000 foot view of that. So I was one of three sons. My dad and my two brothers and myself all became engineers because it was the thing to do. You know, (laughs) good at math, you're good at science, get an engineering degree, you'll never hurt for a job. And I didn't. I went to work uh, in 1980. I'm going to date myself. I went to work with my engineering degree, went to work for the largest corporation in the world, an oil company at the time, and learned a lot of project management and did that for about five and a half years. And then suddenly the entrepreneur switch just turned on inside of me. So I turned in my resignation after getting my real estate license. I had a couple deals in escrow. I was helping friends buy and sell houses in, in Ventura County in California. And I looked at what the commissions were going to be and said, shoot, I'll make more on these three sales I've got going. Then, you know, that I make in three months working at a pretty good salary job as an engineer. And I said, this is great. So I pulled the plug. And of course, as soon as I pulled the plug, two out of three of the deals fell out of escrow. <laughs> so it was welcome to the world of, uh, you know, eating what you kill and becoming a better shot <laughs> so that you kill more. But uh, I have not collected a paycheck from anybody since that was 19, beginning of 1986. So I've been self-employed. I did some transactional business and real estate for a short amount of time. I kept a license for a couple of decades, but mostly what I did was projects. So I was doing residential development projects in Southern California. And the very short version is I got wiped out completely in my 30s by the fallout of the SNL crisis. And you're too young to know what that so the late about. 80s. But it was like the precursor of this subprime crisis that we went through in the uh, 
just in the 2008, you know, right around there. So it was a debt-based debacle that caused my business to crash. And, and it should have been a, a good lesson to me to try to be a small fish in a big pond with a lot of leveraged properties in Southern California. But no, I decided I needed to do it again. So of course, I focused on, quote, affordable housing the second time around and started building back up in about the year 2000 and had a pretty good thing going, had a bunch of land tied up and some projects going and was specking houses. And again, I was doing affordable housing, but affordable becomes a very relative term when you have the kind of crash we had in 2008. So once again, the debt structure, and by the way, the financing structure and the debt structure is what drives real estate values and the real estate Markets. And more importantly, and this is what I love, and obviously you'll track with this, Brad, but the real estate opportunities are all predicated on understanding the financing mechanism. So having lost everything for a second time, I found myself in Kansas City, Missouri, right in the middle of this country with five teenagers under roof with zero income and a lot of torched investors, capital investors. I'm starting over from scratch. So I did what I had to do at the time. I just started picking up houses. You know, they were everywhere, boards on windows everywhere and started doing, you know, the first thing we all run to do is start flipping houses because you can at least control the exit. You know, you can buy the house, you know, you can run the numbers, you can manage the project and you should get some profit at the end of the day. Sometimes not as good as what you'd like, but did that for a few years while I really assessed where do I stick the fork into this elephant that I see that needs to be eaten here called the opportunities that were everywhere. Yeah. And that thing crashed out. I mean, I've always been kind of a hopeful person and an optimistic person, people call me, but, uh, and it's really, it's, that's all stems from my faith. And I, I won't go into that unless you ask me, but that's just, that's how I'm wired. That's just who I am. So I'm looking at REOs, short sales, the whole gamut of areas where you could jump into the opportunity created by the mortgage crisis. And I ended up going all the way upstream to buying the notes. I went to a note conference in 2010 and it blew my mind because I realized, wow, you can get into this with not a whole lot of capital. I'm a pretty good promoter. I see the business model. I see how it works. I think I can go raise money and start from scratch and do this. So I was blessed enough to hear a guy in the side room, not the main uh, room of the event, but talking about second mortgages and all the more you can buy into these second mortgages at very, very much lower cost points. And it's typically we buy the second mortgage where the first mortgage is still performing. So it takes some of the mystery out of the property because, you know, someone's in the home and presumably taking care of it. And so, uh, you know, in a sense, we have an option on the equity in the property by owning the second mortgage. So I started buying about my first second mortgages in 2011 I really thought it was going to be a two or three year run before the opportunity was gone and I'd move on to the next thing. And here we are, you know, nine years later and getting bigger every year and just built relationships so we can get the deal flow. And I mean, we're just having done this, Brad, for, um, you know, eight or nine years now, we average between a 2.2 and a 2.5 X on our invested capital and buying these notes. If we buy a million dollars worth of these non-performing second mortgages, we are going to receive back two and a half million, two, 2.2 to two and a half million. And it takes, you know, 18 to th- months to three years before all of that comes back in, but it's just been consistently good for us. So 
Well, that's kind of the short version. So go ahead and you <laughs> take whatever yeah, part of this so, you want to talk about. So to talk about that, number one, I think one of the, the key things that you said there is you were really surprised that it didn't take a whole lot of capital to get involved into the note business. Are you still seeing that people don't understand and they think they have to have three or four or five million dollars in cash to go in and start buying notes? I mean, what's the landscape of that now? It's all over the board because now we've grown to the point now where we're kind of a perennial player now where, you know, I started off at, at the mom and pop level, but even starting at the mom and pop level, look, here's the deal. And I know you know this and probably most of your listeners, right now, there is so much hungry, yield-starved capital in the world, in our, in our yes. country, sitting in self-directed IRAs, sitting in 401ks that have not yet been rolled over to self-direction, and just, just the, the doctors and the professionals down the street and the family and friends that, that everybody on this call knows. we got to stop making the excuses. Here's the deal. If your business model is good, if the deal makes sense, there is a ton of money that's looking for you if you're able to manage it well, do what you say you're going to do and put together a decent business plan. So, I mean, honestly, I was starting from scratch in a place of, you know, when you get beat up, your confidence isn't where it should be. But, you know, I made three new friends out in Kansas City, actually four, and they were my first investors. And some of them came in like with started with $20,000. One came in with a hundred. And I was like, wow, because he saw, I laid out my model. I did my homework. I spent a year studying this thing. And I put the model down and said, hey, let's do a little joint venture agreement. You put the money up, I'll do the work. You know, we split it 50-50. And I even built in an acquisition fee for myself so I could eat something along yeah. the way, before eat something before the kill. And so the money's out there. And, you know, there's trainers and mentors and people that can help you raise it if you don't have the confidence to go raise it yourself. But it's just, if you're in this space and you're still talking about there's no money, honestly, just I probably should just go get a job. Because the, the I don't want to be rude, but the money is out there. And everybody on this call knows people with money that need to do better than what their banks are paying them or what their Wall Street broker has accomplished for them over the last couple of decades. Yeah, and that's 100% right. I think that there's always this idea that the borrower is really supplicating to the lender. And I mean, the thing is that the lender needs a borrower to put good money in a good, safe place with a good rate of return, just as much as the borrower needs the cash to go and run the business. So and so, I mean, if we can frame it that way, then we're going to do a lot better. So question, so you're buying, I'm assuming non-performing seconds where the first is performing, correct? That's right. That's our main non, that's our main distressed debt model. Yes. Okay. And so what's like the typical note that you're buying in terms of price? How long ago was it originated? And what ends up happening to this deal? If you could just kind of go through a standard deal. All right. So our average size of the loan we buy, I think over doing this a couple thousand times, I think we're between forty and $50,000 is the actual UPB or unpaid. Actually, I'll say it's the, it's the, the payoff balance is probably $50,000 on average for our loans. Okay. We are paying on average somewhere in the high teens to 20% of that number. So if it's a $50,000 balance, we might be paying seven to $10,000 for that. The characteristics which dictate the pricing are really, the number one would probably be the amount of equity that covers our investment. So you take a property, for instance, that's worth, say the fair market value of a property is $200,000 and the first mortgage is 120. So there's $80,000 of equity above the first mortgage. Now, if we're buying a, let's say we're buying an $80,000 second, 
So the CLTV, the combined loan to value, is actually 100% because 120 for the first plus 80 for the second, you know, equals 200. So the homeowner has no equity. However, again, if we're buying that $80,000 loan for 15 or $16,000, you can see there's quite a bit of equity covering our position. So we call that our investment to value ratio. And um, if we have a uh, you know, significant coverage, equity coverage over our investment, we'll pay more for those loans. We've paid up to, you know, in the 60s, 60% of the unpaid principal balance for these loans. That would be a situation where we absolutely know we're going to get a full payoff. Like for instance, let's say in that case, the property's worth $500,000. The first is 150 and our total balance is another hundred. So you know, total debt against the property is 250000 and the property is worth five hundred. okay? Well, we're, we can be pretty aggressive in our, not personally aggressive, but in our approach to an exit strategy. We can reach out to the borrower. Usually they're in denial and they'll say, we don't really owe that. We thought that got charged off, whatever, whatever, you know? And so we'll start the foreclosure process. And it's really just an incentive tool because we do not like to foreclose on people. Sure. We, we have to start the process a lot, but we only finish it less than 2%. I think it's around 1.5% of the time do we have to actually finish the foreclosure. You know, we know we're going to get or we can get a full payoff on our loan. Usually it's waking the borrower up and saying, hey, let's help you get your credit repaired. Go refinance, pay us off, put some money in your pocket and get on with life. Why are you messing around with this 8 9% second mortgage when there's sub 3% money out there in the market. So it's, you know, so again, we paid up to 60 and even a little in the high 60s percent of UPB, but our average is about 17, 18%. Gotcha. And so how are you finding these notes? I'm assuming institutions are packaging them together or are you buying onesies and twosies or private all investors? Above, I mean, how do you find these? This yeah, all, all of the above. We, for us, because of the size we are now, we largely dependent upon the relationships that we've made and we've nurtured in space for the last, you know, eight years. So it is very much of a relationship. These are not like on off the shelf type items. Actually, first mortgages are way more prevalent. Uh, there's a lot of, there's not a lot, but there's several note exchanges out there where a person can actually sign up, sign an NDA and get vetted and then start buying notes. But, uh, Somebody to, to get involved in this business, the only way to do it really is to start attending the conferences. And of course, now everything's virtual, but hey, that's still better than nothing. So that's where we met most of our sources. Uh, that's where, frankly, we met some of the key people that we've hired to work for us is at note industry conferences. So so you build relationships. And you know what's, what I love about the note business is, you know, everybody in the space is a buyer and a seller. Mm -hmm. It really depends on like, you know, we have conversations with each other with, I don't call them competitors. Coopetition is what I like to refer to, but it's like, I'll say, hey, are you capital heavy or or deal heavy right now? Oh, we're deal heavy. We got, we know some big purchases are coming up. We want to replenish our capital. Well, we happen to have just brought on a new $2 million investor. So let's see what you got. And then I may turn around three months later and say, hey, we got more deals than we know what to do with. Did your investor ever come to the table? So we're trading. We're trading partners, really. And and the other thing is some players like particular states. I mean, everybody really has their favorite states. And that's dictated by not only the quality of the real estate and health of the real estate market, but probably the primary driver now of uh, state preference is the regulations and the foreclosure laws 
Is it a judicial or non-judicial foreclosure state? In other words, do you have to file a lawsuit to foreclose or just you know, a, a notice of default and then a, trust, a notice of trustee sale? And so you have a cost and timeline. You have political climates. I mean, there are some states out there that have just rolled the red carpet out and said, hey, borrowers or tenants, you can move into this property and never pay your bills. I mean, literally, we have people that haven't made a mortgage payment in 10 years, and the courts seem to defend them. This is way pre-COVID. This has nothing to do with COVID. COVID just gave an additional excuse to some folks. So there are some states that we'll either stay away from or we'll just highly discount what we pay for those notes. So that's how a lot of trade happens also. There's licensing issues within this space. We're actually licensed, you know, through our, we have a bank that serves as our trustee now, and we've we've gotten a lot of the licenses on our own. But now that we've got this bank trustee, we piggyback off of their national licenses. And that's kind of a big deal. Some states are really uh, hardball with the licensing requirement. And uh, you really have to know the regulatory landscape to get in this business. It's a lot different than it was, you know, eight years ago. It was pretty much the Wild West. Sure. So I just, I want to say that and be perfectly honest up front. If this is a business somebody's looking at getting into, you know, as their first rodeo in real estate, I mean, come to the conferences, have your eyes wide open, listen to not only the awesome stories about the huge, you know, profit margins that can be made, but listen to the stories also about, you know, the lawsuits and the complaints that are filed and the what your legal bill is on an annual basis. I mean, it's pretty big. So, but hey, that's all part of the business model. You can still make money in it. Absolutely. So a bank contacts you and they say, hey, we have these 10 seconds that we want to sell. What's your due diligence process look like? Oh my goodness. We we slice and dice. We have a spreadsheet that's probably anywhere from 60 to 90 columns. Now, some of those are, you know, a little bit superfluous information that the seller provides, but you know, we're going to be looking at, honestly, I call it really the three P's. We're, we're looking at property, we're looking at the paper, and we're looking at the people, which really comes down to credit. We do a little bit of snooping around on social media too. If we get a, a tape that's a portfolio of loans that lands on our desk, you know, we need to provide an indicative bid in three days. You know, we're not going to go as deep on that. We're going to trust the seller's information. And then during our due diligence period, we're going to verify it. So in other words, I'm going to, on the front end, I'm going to take their word for it, what the value of the property is. I'm going to take their word for it, what the senior lien payoff ahead of us is, and what the status of the senior is. Is it trackable by credit report? Are they making their payments? It's, if, if they're making their payments and, and they're trackable by credit, it's pretty transparent. So um, there's a little bit of a, a chess match, a little bit of a, a, an art to figuring out what they really owe on their first, because a lot of these senior liens went through loan modifications. And what shows on the credit report isn't always the full balance owed. You've probably mm-hmm. run into that in your, in your, yes. so we call it hidden principal balance. And we look for certain signs of that. Was there a government loan mod done in the 2009 to 2011 timeframe? You can almost bet there's some deferred principal. That's part of that loan. It may or may not show up on the credit report. So buyer beware, you know, but we've kind of gotten good at this, uh, doing it. And we've lost a few. We've been surprised in a negative direction a handful of times, but we've also been surprised in the positive direction more times, actually. We've ended up buying a lot of seconds that turned out to really be firsts because really? the information, yeah, because the information that the seller provided on the senior lien turns out that was a loan that goes with a different property. And on our property, our $50,000 was a second when it was originated. The first is gone now. It's been paid off. And now we have a $50,000 first on a 
$300,000 property. Well, gee, if we, if we paid 10 grand for that, that's going to be a home run. Right? Yeah. And that happens. But so that's kind of our process. We look at the credit, we look at the uh, pay history, we look at the, um, we look at statute of limitations. We've got to make sure that the, the note is still collectible. If, if it hasn't been paid in, you know, 10 years, there, there could be some, you know, it could, at the very least, it could limit what we're able to collect. And in some cases, it could absolutely bar us from collecting on that debt. So right. we've learned, learned that lesson the hard way. And now that's part of our, that added three or four columns to our due diligence spreadsheet. So <laughs> It's Went from 90 to 93 based off that. Yeah, exactly. That's how the extra three columns got in there. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So you buy the, this paper, you get it assigned to you. And so I'm assuming that you try to get it performing again. Like, is, yeah. is that really like the overall goal is to cash flow it? Yeah. Cash flow or settle it. You know, we probably do. Uh, well, we, have, we, we get successful settlements and or loan mods on probably 65% of everything that we buy. So I should know these numbers because my business partner does these great graphics where he displays all this. And I, I just kind of stay focused on the acquisition side and finding the deals and the sources and whatnot. But, uh, you know, our best outcomes are when we buy a loan for, say, 12 or 15% of the unpaid principal balance. We get it modified for the borrower. That includes, you know, doing what we need to with interest rates. In some cases, we do a, forgi- a principal forgiveness. If it's way out of the money anyway, it really doesn't cost yeah, us doesn't a lot. Matter, yeah. Yes, but it's a good feeling for the borrower. And it, right. and it actually gives them a vision to actually having some equity down the road in their property if they're upside down. So, so we might do a deal like where, you know, for every 12 months on time successful payments that you make, you know, we'll forgive one seventh of the arrears balance. So at the end of seven years, that's gone. And that sometimes that's a significant amount. And now you're back in an equity position. And what have we just done? We've created very sticky paper. We've created really good resellable paper. So our typical resale on our good loan mods would be, again, we maybe paid 15% for it. And now we're selling it for 65 or 70%. So you do the math. I mean, you know, that's a, strong. That's a four to five X on that loan. So, so when I said before that we, you know, we're doing like two and a quarter to two and a half X that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. That includes the ones that the most we're ever going to make is 2x because we paid 50 cents for it, 50% of the UPB, but we know we're going to get the full payoff. And it also includes the ones that we buy for two to five cents on the dollar. And it turns out we were stripped in a bankruptcy and we didn't catch it. And it's a worthless loan. So there's a lot of throwaways too, you know, but, um, you know, after a while you get good at the numbers and you get good at spot and, you know, minimizing the throwaways and maximizing the golden opportunities. So, so is your goal right now just to cash flow paper and hold it, or are you looking to be kind of like available for sale traders or is it a little bit of both? Well, again, we have two sides of our company. So we have the, our non-performing mortgage funds where we buy the non-performers and everything's about an exit strategy there. We form individual uh, serial funds, like we'll form an LLC and we'll put the loans in a trust and we'll raise, say we raise, you know, we're doing one right now, we're raising a fund of uh, $13 million. So while we're raising the 13 million, as funds are coming in, we're out buying notes. At some point we close off the, uh, the funding and the acquisitions period. And then we just wind up the rest of the workouts or whatever exits we can get and then in three or four years, it's, you know, whatever's left, we just, we liquidate. But during that time, we want to exit every single asset. So those funds are not set up to hold paper long-term. We do better spinning that capital and making the two and a half X than we do making 13 or 14% on an ongoing basis. So 
in the beginning, we started there and then we added, I think it was in 2014, maybe 15, we added an income fund where we buy reperforming these loan mods from other funds. You know, we, we've watched ourselves and others sell this paper off at deep discounts, this performing paper. And we got to thinking, gosh, that's pretty good cash flowing paper. You know, we should set up a fund to buy it. So that's the other side of our business. So that's the, we're in that to hold these loans for the long term. And when I say long term, I mean, our best day is when we buy somebody's loan mod for 60 cents on the dollar and we're buying them at typically a 12 to 17% yield on our investment right from the get-go based on current cash flow coming in. And then we get the email payoff request. You know, I've sold the property or I'm refinancing the property. And I need to know how much, what's the exact payoff balance. Well, gee, the loan we paid 60000 for, you owe 100000 for, no questions asked. Well, we just made a $40,000 profit when that pays off, in addition to the 12 or 13% we were collecting, you know, at the beginning. So I say we're in it for the long term, but if anyone wants to pay us off early, we absolutely It's not it. the end of the world, is it? It's not the end of the world <laughs> at all. So, uh, and, and I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, man, like these returns just sound massive. This is incredible. But the idea of, well, you know, you're buying non-performing seconds in one company and spending it across three to five years. On the other side, you're looking at long-term cash flow. But I mean, how many of these non-performing seconds do you get that are just completely dead? Like you can't figure out how to, they're not going to, to pay the, the note. And so what do you do then? If we're cherry picking, which we do sometimes, uh, in other words, we're going into a portfolio and saying, you know, do we want to buy any of that low, low value stuff, which the low value stuff, you get the best multiples out of. I'll just say that right up front. I mean, some of the loans, we, we bought a bunch of loans, you know, probably four years ago, we bought this portfolio of loans, which included a bunch of stuff we paid 2% for. 2% would be, we don't know what's going on with the senior. We're blind to the senior, but we know when the senior was originated, it was 300000 Mm-hmm. Properties were two fifty. Our second's thirty thousand dollars. We might pay six hundred bucks for that thing. Okay, we have no idea whether the senior's been paid down to two hundred or whether the senior's like the foreclosure is happening tomorrow. You know? Right. But if you buy a hundred of those, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. How, it's a lot of work, but you end up making you know a, the better multiples on those loans. But it's just a lot more brain damage. You know, a lot more moving yeah. parts. So. I can't give you an exact percentage, but, um, you know, I, I would say absolute throwaways, gosh, it's got to be le- on a purchase value basis. It's got to be less than 2% of what we buy. Yeah. To us, that's like, look, if you buy a 7-Eleven store, there's an expense on your budget called employee theft and loss. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, just, yeah it's just true. It, it, it's just part, yeah, it's part of business. So. So we know we're going to get some of those unless we're cherry picking and then we then we can avoid it because we know how to avoid it. Yeah, and that makes sense. So in terms of your investment to value ratio, I mean, what's the max that you would go? Or is it just, it really depends? <laughs> so on, on the non-performing side? Correct. Quite a bit different than on the performing side. So on the performing side, I'll do that one first. It's easy. You know, you're involved in, you know, you've done fix and flip, right? Oh, yeah. And okay, so you're familiar. I mean, typically you're looking for a 65% LTV max. Some people push it to 70 when they're desperate to get their money out the door because they want to have a cushion in case they have to step in and take the property over. That's a pretty good rule of thumb on our income side. We'll pay for paper at about a 12 to 13% 
cash flow, current cash flow, if we're at a 65 or 70% LTV, you know, or ITV, I should say, investment to value ratio. We don't really care so much about the, the loan to value ratio. It's what we paid for it. So the, uh, the investment to value ratio. On the other side, on the non-performing side, we look at it like this. There's a saying out there, there are no bad notes. There's just bad prices. Mm. So everything's price driven. I'll buy a second from somebody. I mean, let's give you a scenario. Property's worth, this is, this is a prominent uh, doctor or let's just say, uh, let's say he's a city employee. Say, say it's a city manager. And we've had these, we've had these kind of deals. He's a city manager, high political profile in a community and his property is worth $750,000 and his first mortgage is six ninety, dollars and we've got this $200,000 second that we own that he hasn't made a payment on in seven years. Okay, this guy does not want foreclosure. Mm-hmm. He's not going to file bankruptcy because he might get fired from the city if he does. So he's going to stay in play. Now we're nice guys. We're not out. You know, we're not going to say you're, we're going to collect the full two fifty, even though, dude, you're three hundred grand upside down in your property. But there's a whole different set of incentives. If I'm lending money to a fix and flipper, okay, let's face it, it's a business to business loan. If we have a, a downturn in the market or he blows it on his numbers, his cost estimating, his his resale value estimating, it's just super easy for another LLC to hand our LLC the keys or make us come and get them. And, you know, no harm, no foul. Um, there's no profit in this fix and flip for me anymore. I'm walking away. But we're talking about people's homes. Mm-hmm. So this is what makes us, <laughs> this is why I love to put our model up against a, like a hard money lenders model. And we do some hard money lending, so I'm not throwing them under the bus, but people are only going to walk away from their home. It's an absolute last resort. They're only going to stop making their payments an absolute last resort. We're seeing some of those now with COVID, but that's even cleaning up. So there's something called emotional equity. You know, people don't wake up in the morning, you know, hey, honey, I just ran Zillow on our home and our equity just went from $20,000 to zero. We should get out of this house because we don't have equity in it anymore. What are you talking about? We have a great mortgage rate. Our kids go to school down the street to rent a similar house to the one we're paying the mortgage on. We'd actually have to pay more. We're not going anywhere. You see what I'm saying? I mean, it's- So uh, there's a bit of a, uh, an art to this whole thing. You have to really kind of get inside of like, what's a person thinking that's on the other side of the transaction? What they're thinking is, this is my home. I want to keep it predominantly. We run into some exceptions, but that's really, you know, that, that's the difference right there. So if you had to tell us one really interesting deal from your career, you had to pick one. What do you think that would be? I, I know. And, and whenever I get yeah. that question, I'm like, man, do you have like an hour? Because I could go through 10. We just, in get, we just get so many that are bizarre, incredible, and great. I'll just tell you that I may not get the numbers exactly right on this because it was this is going back five or six years, but I love this one because so there was this lady who was out in the, in the Sacramento area in, in California. And, um, you know, I think the first mortgage, say, let's say the house was worth 700000 and the first mortgage was worth, was uh, she owed 500000 And you could see on credit, perfect pay history, never missed a payment, good FICO scores. The person's employed. We can see all of this. And our loan balance is $200,000. So, you know, the property's worth seven fifty. We're fully covered. I mean, if we had to go foreclose, we probably wouldn't recover the full two hundred. dollars We could take the property back and maybe fix and flip it. But it's like, 
we're probably not going to get everything out of us, but it was a loan that we had paid $30,000. Okay. She owes 200. Let's just say those are close. So she's belligerent. I mean, we engage her, you know, servicer reaches out to her. We use a third party licensed servicers for everything, but then we do some of the outreach ourselves. We're very compliance minded. We're all, you know, our, our workout team is trained bankers. They've all had bank experience, mortgage experience. So we know how to treat people and deal with them right and legally. So we reach out and it's like, she's having, I mean, she's just belligerent. Like I'm not paying this thing, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So <laughs> her dad calls us up and starts reading us the riot act about, I'm going to sue you guys. Why are you, why are you going after my daughter and trying threatening to take that? Which we didn't, we didn't, we never threatened anything. Sure. And we said, well, Mr. Mr. XYZ, um, you know, we got to do something to protect our position. And, you know, a payment hasn't been made on this mortgage in seven years. Dead silence. Dead silence. He goes, what did you just say? I said, yeah, payment hasn't been made on this mortgage in seven years. We've owned it for two. And we see the pay history going back, you know, five more. It was a situation where it used to be, I guess, it used to be the father's house. And he gave it to his kids, I guess, a son and a daughter. And somehow they bifurcated the responsibility where the son would pay the first mortgage and then she would pay the second. I don't know how they worked that out, sure. but, but he, he actually disclosed that to us. <laughs> and he goes, I am so sorry. He goes, I'm going to actually be with the, the family this weekend and we will get this resolved next week. And I'm thinking, I wonder what resolved means. Right. Well, the next week we get a wire from dad for $200,000 and an apology. Wow. Okay. Th- those happen. <laughs> That's incredible. Those so, are those I mean, happen. whenever you got that wire in, were you like, this can't be true? Like, what? Well, what? I would say that, except we, you know, we, you know, if you're in this long enough. And by that point in time, we'd seen some really, really sweet surprises like that. And then I can tell you about some other ones where we've been sued and, you know. Yeah. Give us one bad one that, that just. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. Well, um, yeah, so so this was up another one in Northern California, actually, up in kind of a, in the, uh, you know, Silicon Valley area, up in the hills, though, ex- expensive homes. And a uh, gentleman that had a name I can't pronounce, you know, uh, hadn't made payments and whatever, was just never responded to anything. This property was a house that was, you know, the AVMs showed it worth about $1.2 million. But when you really do the digging around, it's worth about $1.2 million as a teardown to build. It was a decent lot. This is an area where people are building their four and $5 million homes. Interesting. Okay. So it's this small kind of uncared for home. And, and we had just a boatload of equity. I think the first was 350. Our second was 350. And so we're in all in 700 is a total debt against the property. I mean, this sounds pretty good so far. Oh, it's really good. It's really good. I mean, I'm already like, I'm already, because this guy's, he actually did respond, but it was nasty. And I'm thinking, oh, we're going full court press. This guy doesn't just pay us off. We'll be shocked if he doesn't pay us off. But So we get to, I think it was the day before. Yeah, it was the day before our foreclosure auction. And I'm like, we're going to get this property back tomorrow because we were going to bid. We were going to bid it up to our max payoff. And I was even thinking about having a third party bid it up higher to get the property to do a project. You know, I want to do a fix and flip up there, but okay. So a day before our sale date, we get this, you know, very skeleton bankruptcy filing that looked sketchy. And our attorney, our trustee, 
in California that was doing the, you know, foreclosure. I said, well, what do you think? I mean, and they go, well, this looks, first of all, it's too late. And it looks to us like this isn't legit. I said, how so? Well, a long story short, this individual had gotten online, gone to the county that our property was in, looked up public records, somebody's bankruptcy filing, captured that name and that filing document. Then he went in and he created a spousal or some sort of a quick claim deed from himself to that other person who was a stranger, went and found a document signed by her with th- that had been notarized online, cut and pasted the notary information. He basically created this cut and paste fraudulent conveyance. And then that person conveyed to was the one who filed the bankruptcy. So I look at this and say, I talked to an attorney that afternoon and said, don't postpone the sale yet. We can always do that last minute in the morning. Because whenever you get a bankruptcy filed, you know, usually just postpone and say, hey, we don't want to get sideways with the federal court, you know, with sure. the federal law. So, but we looked at this thing and we discerned pretty easily what this person had done. And so we said, let's go forward with the foreclosure sale. And if we're right that this is fraudulent, we'll never hear from that guy again. And that's exactly what happened. Unfortunately, not unfortunately, but wasn't the number one desired outcome was to get the property and make a million bucks on a flip. But we got a full payoff. And I think it ended up being like 375000 by the time we got the payoff. And again, that was a loan that we paid, I don't remember, I think 40 grand for. Wow. So that was a pretty bizarre story. <laughs> so, yeah, that's pretty incredible. So last question before we wrap up. I mean, how many notes are you guys servicing right now? I believe we're at about uh, 1,700 to 2,000, somewhere in there. Okay. Uh, that, you don't want 2,000 rentals? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> no. no, I mean, if we end up with some, that's fine. I mean, I, by the way, I'm a big believer in hard assets as well. I love paper. Paper's cash flow. It's kind of, you know, you can manage virtually. You can manage a lot of paper, which means you can manage a lot of real estate value. But if you think about it in very simple terms, Brad, you know, in a perfect world with a real estate note, people pay you for 20 or 30 years and you get that cash flow. But then at the end of it, you got nothing. You got your money back, but you got nothing. You own a rental property. And if you're disciplined and you have a good program at the end of that 30 years, if you've done it right, your tenant has paid all the mortgage payments for you. And now you have an asset that'll sit and pay you for quote the rest of your life or your kids. So I'm a firm believer in doing both, you know, have a cash flow business and have a wealth building business. And uh, I think where people get in trouble is they try to make their rental business their their cash flowing business rather than their wealth creation business, and they start living off of their quote net cash flow. Mm-hmm. And you know net cash flow it's doable, but man, you better have a serious reserve plan and a contingency plan, and not be over leveraged with the properties because that whole house of cards can come down fast if you spend all the money coming out the back end of that thing. You know, watch out. So anyway, that's my little pontification on that. So yeah, 100%, 100%. Jim, if people are interested in putting some money with you, what's the best way to find you? Okay. So uh, first of all, let me just say right up, our funds are for accredited investors only. 100%. So um, we're looking at down the road, maybe a different kind of a funding structure, which will allow, you know, unaccredited investors to come on board. But for now, I have to make that disclaimer. So, but if anyone even wants information on this industry, I mean, I'll be happy to respond if they just visit our website. And that's uh, aspenfunds.us. And it's one word, Aspen, A-S-P-E-N-F-U-N-D-S dot U-S. And just fill out the little contact information and put a note like, saw Jim on the podcast. 
interested in more information and, you know, somebody will reach out. And if it's not a fit to invest with us, um, you know, like I said, we'll, we'll help steer you in hopefully the right direction or a good direction and, uh, you know, provide whatever help we can. Jim, appreciate it very much. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, it's been great chatting with you.